in a matter of a frightening few days and weeks, some of the largest investment banks in the world failed, stock markets plunged, banks stopped lending to families and small businesses, our auto industry was flatlining, the economy was shrinking by an annual rate of more than 8%. Our businesses were shedding 800,000 jobs each month. It was a perfect storm that would rob millions of Americans of jobs and homes and savings that they had worked a lifetime to build. Welcome back to PS Editor's Podcast. I'm Jonathan Stein, Managing Editor of Project Syndicate, and I'm taking over the reins from Greg Bruno for a special edition from the United States. In this episode, we're diving deep into the causes, consequences, and lessons learned, or not, from the Great Recession. It's been 10 years since the biggest financial crisis since the Great Depression devastated economies worldwide, leading to unprecedented monetary policies, national debt crises, and untold suffering and loss for billions of people. Where are we today? In this extended episode, we'll talk to five economists who have led the way in seeking sustainable and just solutions to repair the systemic flaws that brought the world to the brink of depression. Robert Schiller is a 2013 Nobel laureate in economics and professor at Yale University. Stephen Roach, also at Yale, is a former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia. Teresa Ghilarducci is a labor and retirement security economist at the New School. Jeffrey Sachs is director of Columbia's Center for Sustainable Development and of the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network. And Angus Deaton is a 2015 Nobel laureate in economics and professor at Princeton University. And with that, here in New Haven, Connecticut, let's jump right in with Bob Schiller. Great to have you with us today, Bob. My pleasure. So let's set the scene. It's 2008. Asset prices are in free fall and credit markets have seized up. This is an extraordinary period for America's economy. Over the past few weeks, many Americans have felt anxiety about their finances and their future. I understand their worry and their frustration. We've seen triple-digit swings in the stock market. Major financial institutions have teetered on the edge of collapse, and some have failed. As uncertainty has grown, many banks have restricted lending. Credit markets have frozen. And families and businesses have found it harder to borrow money. We are in the midst of a serious financial crisis. Why were those raising the alarm about the subprime mortgage boom, for the most part, ignored? And what crucial checks against excessive risk-taking had been weakened or eliminated in the years before 2008? (laughs) Big question. I wondered about that back then. I was warning about a crisis. I don't know if I use the word Great Recession, but I was worried that home prices were very high. You know, the puzzle goes beyond just that. I I created a data series of home prices back to 1890, and when you look at that, the experience jumps out at you. They've never gone up this rapidly before, Uh, but why had nobody done that? To me, it says something about human intelligence. People can be very smart when they focus. But there's no authority telling us what to focus on. 
So they were hardly paying attention. They were just kind of assuming these markets would keep going up. And that was the fundamental problem. The collapse of Lehman Brothers uh, 10 years ago was the largest bankruptcy filing in U.S. history and sent shockwaves across the global financial system. Uh, the big banks were, of course, bailed out and made subject to stricter regulations, particularly higher capital requirements. Was it enough? A decade later, are the major banks' balance sheets healthy enough and are new rules robust enough uh, to prevent another meltdown like we saw 10 years ago? Well, it's hard to be sure. One thing is that generals always like to fight the last war, and they tend to take a different form in different times. Uh, financial crises have not always been so prominently banking crises. Even the Great Depression didn't start out as a banking crisis. It was a stock market crisis the, the, in 1929. The banking crisis became intense in 1933. Uh, that was three and a half years later. So, you know, these things are not uh, cut and dry. They have different forms at different times. So we've increased the capital requirements on banks. But that doesn't prevent, say, the stock market from crashing or causing a big economic calamity. There were, you know, obviously there were regulations in place that would, uh, you know, enacted after the Great Depression to prevent a financial market meltdown like that from affecting banks. Glass-Steagall is one, for example, which was uh, ultimately repealed in the 1990s. And there's some controversy about this, whether the repeal of Glass-Steagall set the stage. What's your take on it? Glass-Steagall uh, was over a decade before the uh, crisis, so it didn't. It's not like uh, it's a, a switch that was thrown. Right. Uh, and we, we operated without Glass-Steagall uh, for centuries <laughs> before that. So. And had crises every few years, right? I mean. So the problem is that these crises are hard to understand, and that I think that they are related to psychology. Uh, and as a result, uh, you know, psychology isn't an exact science either. I mean, not psychotherapy, is right. it? <laughs> so uh, it, it could happen again. All it takes is some disturbing of our confidence. Right. If banks have more capital, then maybe they won't fail this time. A lot of banks didn't fail in all these crises, you know. In uh, Lehman Brothers didn't fail in the Great Depression. It went sailing right through the <laughs> Great Depression. Right. Then it, the smaller event that we've had recently, the Great Recession, wiped them out. Yeah. It's because it's complicated. They made risky decisions at Lehman. They didn't know that they were making risk de risky decisions, but they were. You know, that leads very uh, smoothly into my next question, because you've been a, a pioneer of the so-called behavioral approach in economics, which has uncovered abundant evidence that market participants act in ways that no rational expectations model would an anticipate. And so the question is, has the crisis changed market behavior in any way? Are participants any more or less susceptible to psychological factors than they were before 2008? Or did the crisis vindicate a focus on economic fundamentals like interest rates and, and, and company earnings? <laughs> I don't know. Our, uh... Uh, my uh, price-earnings <laughs> ratio, well, that's an answer. I don't know. Uh, but the uh, price-earnings ratio is going up again. I, as I define it uh, with the, what I call the CAPE ratio, it's up to 33. It's uh, almost as high as it's ever been. Well, it was higher in the past, but not often. Yeah. And it usually corrects back down. 
Yeah. Uh, that lesson has not been learned. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's because there's so many different ways to think about this. Some people at the current time are th in the United States are thinking, well, we at last have a business-oriented president, and this man will, he's already cut corporate profits taxes. Right. He's going to do a lot for business. And there's no way to prove whether that's right or wrong because it's never happened before. Not exactly, not exactly this. Right. Let's uh, wrap it up there. Thank you very much for uh, talking with us today. Um, Bob Schiller, uh, professor of economics at Yale University. Uh, and we'll, uh, I hope, talk to you again. Nice to be here. Thanks. So now we're with Steve Roach, and uh, I guess I'd, I'd like to start off uh, with a question about the way the 2008 financial crisis is portrayed as a this sort of sudden eruption. But is that the case? It wasn't just Lehman Brothers in September of that year, and even by the time Bear Stearns collapsed earlier in 2008, it was clear that something was amiss. But what exactly? You know, I have what is still a, um, a contrarian and widely unpopular view that the um, the crisis erupted because of reckless and irresponsible policies conducted by the Federal Reserve Board for years before that. Uh, the Fed fostered an environment of exceptionally low interest rates, excess liquidity, and aggressive risk-taking. Sure, the banks, and I was employed by one, made huge mistakes in uh, levering up too much so that when the, the music stopped, uh, they were in severe trouble. But a more disciplined central bank uh, who had been uh, more aggressive uh, at removing the punch bowl during uh, times of great froth, I think would have made a great difference. And the Fed, for a variety of reasons, uh, failed to do that and to this very day refuses to recognize the role that it played in fostering the excesses that ultimately culminated in this uh, uh, great crisis. And, you know, and in the decade uh, since the crisis, uh, the global economy itself has changed. Uh, in particular, the role of China has grown even more pronounced. Um, and you've written extensively about what you call a codependent relationship between the U.S. and China. Americans buy lots of Chinese exports, and China finances a lot of American consumption. And yet, despite the two sides' deep economic inter interdependence, China emerged from the crisis um, relatively unscathed. Uh, why? Well, China was quick to um, uh, provide a massive fiscal stimulus in the depths of the uh, crisis, um, much more so as a share of GDP than other major uh, developed economies. But they, um, uh, they, they created a lot of problems in doing that that they're now just beginning to address. In particular, the sharp run-up in uh, debt. Their debt-to-GDP ratio went from about 150% pre-crisis to uh, around 250% uh, today. And so now there's a lot of focus in, in China on uh, uh, deleveraging. China was also a, um, a developing economy that was, uh, uh, it had been very careful in managing its financial balance sheet, its international exposure uh, in the decade before the financial crisis uh, of 2008 and 09, mindful of the lessons of a crisis a decade earlier in Asia in 97, 98, uh, where um, uh, a lot of countries made serious mistakes 
in exposing themselves to the uh, vicissitudes of global finance. So uh, uh, China's benefited a lot from studying the experiences uh, of, of others. European finance ministers have met in Poland, top of the agenda, how to deal with the Eurozone debt crisis. But the ministers are far from an agreement with ongoing divisions between the Eurozone countries and the European the Central Eurozone Bank. The Eurozone debt crisis is worsening, with fears it could now engulf Italy. The Italian economy is the third largest in Europe. Markets have been spooked by a jump in interest rates on Italian bonds. And political the package we have agreed tonight, this comprehensive package, confirms that Europe will do what it takes to safeguard financial stability. I've said it before and I'll say it again. This is a marathon, not a sprint. Keeping it sort of a, a more global focus, the U.S. financial crisis in 2008, 2009, and the 2010 Eurozone debt crisis are often viewed as separate occurrences. In his recent book, Crashed, Columbia University historian Adam Tooze argues that they were intrinsically linked. But more important, the responses, uh, un, perhaps unlike China and the U.S., the responses of the Eurozone and, and the U.S. Uh, were very similar. There was a mix of rapid fiscal tightening and austerity in many places in Europe, and massive helpings of unconventional monetary policy, characterized by ultra-low interest rates and quantitative easing. Can one say, though, that one side's policymakers managed the crisis better? Well, first of all, I agree with Adam that these two crises are linked. Um, the crisis of 08 and 09 presented Europe uh, with this asymmetrical shock uh, that wasn't supposed to happen, and, and yet it did uh, impact a few countries very differently uh, than others, and Europe did not have the institutional fabric uh, to um, uh, adequately address banking and sovereign debt issues, and it made uh, a huge tactical mistake in failing to distinguish between uh, a, um, uh, a, a liquidity crisis uh, and uh, a more systemic uh, debt-related crisis. The, um, uh, the U.S., um, I think was certainly more effective uh, in addressing the 08 and 09 crisis, a more aggressive fiscal stimulus uh, than Europe was able to muster. But uh, Europe suffered from a lot of structural problems that, that the U.S. Uh, did not have to uh, address, in particular the, um, uh, the lack of labor market mo mobility, the lack of a fiscal transfer mechanism, uh, the lack of... Uh, uh, coordinated uh, banking regulatory policy left Europe at a distinct disadvantage relative to the U.S., and it's only now beginning to come to grips with those uh, uh, important shortcomings in its policy arsenal. Let's wrap it up there. Uh, thank you very much, Stephen Roach, for uh, joining us today on the, on the podcast. Thank you. It may be empty. Uh, we don't know. Yeah. Hello? Hello? How you doing, sir? Deputy Sheriff, Richmond County. Nobody likes to move, but when you're forced, when it's forced upon you, it, it, it tastes even a little bit more bitter. 
The administration today stepped in more aggressively than it ever has before to try to stop the economic losses from the subprime mortgage and housing markets. The Treasury Secretary, Henry Paulson, is pushing an initiative called Hope Now, asking mortgage lenders to stop unnecessary foreclosures and to help qualified homeowners refinance their subprime mortgages. We're in New York. Thanks for joining us, Teresa. I'd like to start with the issue that triggered the crisis, the subprime mortgage bubble. And it goes to an issue sort of at the heart of American society, home ownership, which has long been promoted as a great equalizer, a powerful economic stabilizer, bedrock of a middle-class society. Ten years later, has there been a return to normal? No, not at all. Um, there has been a change in behavior, and the biggest change in behavior has been the banks. Um, credit is much more difficult to get. Um, it hasn't been because bankers changed their mind about how to get profits. It's because of the enormous amount of regulation and scrutiny about their credit quality. Um, also, the market is a little bit wiser, meaning the participants in the market a little bit wiser, and can um, scope out a fake you know, collateral debt obligation or, or security when they see it. So they're fighting the last war, and credit quality is better, and we don't see the kind of bubble um, or poor quality or fragility in the housing market. And Wall Street has rebounded strongly, hitting record highs, more than three times index levels in early 2009. But recovery on Main Street is rather sluggish. And, and the question is why? Have policies focused too much on uh, encouraging aggregate GDP growth rather than mitigating entrenched uh, inequality? Um, I, I actually think that government policy is also focused on the stock market. So there are the economists who look traditionally at GDP growth as a marker for health, but a lot of the policies are made looking at Wall Street uh, as a marker of political health. Let me tell you about the people that I study, and these are the growing population of people over the age of 50. And many of them did all the right things. They accumulated assets in their 401k and their IRAs. They worked hard, and at 50, at 52, they lost half or more of their nest egg, and they have never recovered. If they were a little bit older, they had to completely change plans and stay in the labor market. And just last year, we're hearing what they're doing. They're working in Amazon warehouses and living in their trailer because of the financial crisis. So they did not recover. And you know, the crisis maybe less directly has hit young people hard as well. They're more likely to be saddled with student debt, which they may not be able to service, and they're less likely to own their own homes. Ten years from now, how do you see their economic circumstances? Right. So the young people that graduated into the recession um, or graduated in 2008, um, they're now in their 30s or, or late 20s, um, they are at a disadvantage. Research shows that the labor market scarring from graduating or coming into, a, coming into adulthood into a recession will last their whole lifetime. So we have that group, the, um, the millennials who are a little bit older. You asked me about the young people now in their, their early 20s. Um, what I know is that I can't talk about a generation in general 
because what we have learned is that every generation is stratified, that inequality is the quality, the characteristic that we have to look at. And so what I know about this generation is that some are going to do very, very well, and an increasingly um, large share will not be doing well. They'll do worse than their parents and grandparents in terms of mobility and choice. That leads to my next uh, my next question. Traditionally, the story of any economic recovery ends with a return to normal employment levels, maybe not full employment, but higher employment. And the U.S. is uh, now reaching decade lows in unemployment, but people are still suffering. The New York Times yesterday ran a story uh, about uh, the working homeless. Why is having a job no longer enough? I have to say that among the economics profession, the story about the recovery um, is not when the next recession is going to come. That we know is going to come. It happens like Haley's Comet. But the story is how shallow the recovery was. That we have seen that from peak to peak, the wage growth and the employment growth, the quality of the jobs have actually fallen. The, the labor share has had this secular decline. But this recovery was one of the longest and weakest um, than, than we've ever seen in recorded history. So that's the reason. While um, the work, workers who are making below the median, so half of the labor force, have not seen a real wage increase, a real quality of living. Let me, let me put this in perspective. The United States leads the um, OECD the League of Rich Nations, as having the largest share of low-page job. Now, that's a distinction we might be proud of, but 30% of our workers work at what other nations consider kind of poor or poverty wages, two-thirds less than the median. It seems then that the Great Recession revealed that the financial system doesn't work for most workers. What would need to change? Um, we need to restore labor share. Um, it's been um, fallen, and we know that government policy is one of the best ways to, to alter the balance between capital and labor. A rising economy, a rising tide, does not lift all boats anymore. Um, that was a comfortable place to be as an economist 30 years ago, because all we had to do was increase productivity. But now we have to focus on productivity, growth, and redistribution. And the state, the government, is the place to do it. We have to restore the progressive income tax system. Um, we have to encourage um, states and localities to restore um, progressive revenue sources. Um, we have to still regulate the financial system because the financial system has something to offer the bottom 80%, and that has been debt. And that has increased the inequality and made their household much more fragile. Okay, you've talked uh, quite a bit about government policy, but what can people themselves do to insulate themselves from this kind of very high risk uh, that, as you say, half their nest egg could be wiped out? I've, I really want to stress what we've always stressed, is that don't believe the hype. The stock market is not a safe place to put your money, and it doesn't always go up. Remember, remember, remember that what goes up can come drastically down. So make sure that you deleverage 
before the crisis. Make sure that you have enough money to pay your mortgage so that you don't have to sell your stocks and bonds when they're at the very lowest level. I say this to people, especially who are um, approaching retirement, that's about um, 15 million people, but even young people should be very careful about taking on debt now. And if you think you're going to get a job right away when you graduate and that it's going to pay as much as they pay now, start um, scaling down those expectations. This is a good time to do it when you might actually get a little bit of a raise and you can put things away, but don't ratchet up your spending and don't go into debt. Jeff Sachs, and we've been talking quite a bit about the economic ramifications of the 2008-2009 crisis, but what about the cultural and political consequences? In the decades since, the mood in the U.S. and much of Europe is arguably as dark as it has ever been in the modern era. Uh, did Americans stop believing in the American dream and Europeans in the vaunted uh, European social model? I think the financial crisis uh, played into this malaise. Uh, it's not the only factor. Uh, certainly, the ongoing wars, uh, the mass migration, uh, the uh, social divisions, uh, the rise of nationalism that's all part of that uh, played into uh, this uh, mood, a dark mood now. Uh, but the financial crisis uh, was a heavy blow. It put uh, countless millions of people at uh, deep risk. Uh, countless people lost their homes, their jobs, their livelihoods. And the way that uh, governments handled this crisis was not uh, especially inspiring, nor was it uh, very fair. Uh, people watched the bankers get bailed out uh, in the United States. Not one single major banker uh, went to jail for uh, deep malfeasance, uh, massive corruption, uh, and uh, they walked away. Not only did they walk away, we watched them uh, walk uh, to uh, more state dinners at the White House and to continue to be uh, the titans of the universe, and people didn't like that across the political spectrum. Unlike many other instances of national crisis, one thinks of 9-11 or Watergate, the 2008-2009 financial crisis never prompted investigations that might have helped restore public trust in the system. And that seems consistent with the failure after Barack Obama's election to hold anyone accountable for the U.S. wars launched during the 2000s, which badly eroded America's global standing. And so what's happened, and this is sort of what you touched upon, many Americans now seem to view the political system as rigged, the economic system is inherently unfair, and in 2016 elected a president who claimed that he alone uh, could fix everything. So the question is, what went wrong with America's political economy and when? The American political system, unfortunately, is rigged, uh, and uh, both political parties are a part of it. 
Bill Clinton, one could say, uh, had the the political deftness to uh, marry Wall Street with the Democrats, uh, and uh, he then presided over an era of deregulation, uh, pro-banker deregulation. So the Democrats, who historically since the New Deal were the party of the underdog, became the party uh, fully of the establishment, uh, maybe a different part of the establishment, the Republicans more oil, gas, military, uh, the Democrats more Wall Street and health care, uh, but uh, both uh, very much part of uh, big and comfortable money. When President uh, Obama came in, he brought in uh, pretty much the same team, pro-Wall Street, uh, pro-banker. Uh, the benign view of this is uh, that they faced a uh, a calamity of uh, financial collapse and getting the system going was the highest priority. There's a, a smidgen of truth uh, in that. Uh, perhaps uh, had one really gone after the malfeasors, uh, the recovery might have been delayed. The crisis of financial confidence uh, could have uh, been prolonged. Could be true. On the other hand, uh, the less benign view is that they bailed out the SOBs that got us into this mess. And uh, I'm uh, rather partial to that view. I know a lot of those SOBs personally <laughs> and feel that uh, at a minimum, they should have been held accountable. They should have apologized, not said that they're doing the Lord's work. Uh, they should have understood that they were bailed out. I appeal to uh, Larry Summers uh, at one point in 2009, at least stop the bonuses for these people. No, no, we can't do that. Uh, so it was uh, pretty much a comfortable mutual uh, hug uh, from uh, the White House and Wall Street uh, during that period. And it rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Of course, uh, the, the man that uh, was elected to clear the swamp is the, is the uh, master swamp denizen of all, uh, the, the biggest kleptocrat uh, and lowlife uh, that we produce, a real mafia type, actually. But um, that's the irony of politics. When things go bad, you get thugs uh, that come to power, and we've got one, unfortunately, now. Yeah, it's a paraphrase, uh, Hemingway, the scum always rises. Um, you know, and, and, and of course, you know, as you, as you mentioned, it's not just America. You know, the 2008-2009 crisis hit Europe with a bit of a lag, but the populist surge there has been no less dramatic than in, in the U.S. And we've seen this recently now, you know, Brexit in, in, in Italy. Uh, the Swedish right has come on, uh, right-wing party has come on uh, very strongly. Is democracy the tipping point? We're in trouble, again, for a number of uh, complicated reasons, uh, some overt, uh, the high unemployment, the disaffection, uh, the uh, failures of uh, European policymaking to solve really deep crises uh, in Greece, uh, in Italy, and we see a populist uh, backlash. The wars in the Middle East and in Libya, totally misguided. Uh, pr pretty much uh, the military side of the 2008 financial uh, debacle in the sense of major, major conceptual and policy failures by the elites, uh, especially in the U.S., uh, did a, a big job uh, in uh, Europe as well. And then there are 
actually, I, I believe, I suspect, nefarious things going on because uh, Mr. Bannon, uh, as he runs around uh, Europe trying to knit together the right-wing uh, anti-migrant uh, parties with the right-wing uh, racist uh, parts of America, is uh, actually with an agenda. It's, as he calls it, the movement. Uh, and we should not uh, neglect the actual visible hands operating as well as uh, these larger social forces. So we're in a political battle right now as well, decency versus uh, a lot of nefarious forces. And it's all added up to be a very dangerous moment for Europe, a very dangerous moment for the United States. And when that happens, a dangerous moment for the whole world. And it really is a political battle. The question is, is there possibly an upside to all of this? Uh, in America, you see many, many more young people uh, becoming politically mobilized, running for office. Lots of women this year running for office as well. Is, is a, pol a more politically engaged electorate one of the consequences of the development of the last decade? I think uh, politics are back, uh, and uh, it's uh, uh, no small thing uh, what's happening now. Uh, a lot of people understand correctly that the stakes are very, very high, that Trump is not uh, a mere buffoon but uh, represents uh, very dark and dangerous forces uh, that the kind of criminality, uh, the illegality, uh, the brazen uh, breaking up of the rules of the international system uh, really mark uh, something dangerous and deep. I think the most uh, thrilling single development in the U.S. Uh, side is what you mentioned, uh, the rise of women uh, candidates. Uh, maybe that is Hillary's uh, real legacy, actually, uh, not in a, the most uh, direct uh, and immediate way, but um, in the indirect inspiration, uh, especially with a misogynist in the White House in an incredibly nasty, ugly manner of his uh, women are saying, we don't want to live in that kind of society. And I think that's extraordinarily positive and extraordinarily exciting. So moments like this, uh, you can find uh, uh, thrilling glimmers, but uh, I actually keep a lot of the gloom in, in, uh, in, in mind as well, because these are dangerous times. Uh, and uh, I, I believe that uh, we're facing uh, dark forces, and there are even deeper global uh, tectonic changes underway, uh, notably the rise of China and the complete neurotic reaction of uh, the U.S. security state to the rise of China that uh, mean that you have a lot of uh, feelings. I, I have a lot of feelings uh, of this being not unlike the deep shifts uh, in the years uh, leading up to 1914 or the deep shifts in the years uh, leading to the 30s. Um, not to say that there's any determinism of disaster, but if we're not careful, we will face disaster. What you've laid out really does make it uh, clear that we're at a turning point. It could go one way or the other, and the outcome isn't inevitable. What can people do to fight back and ensure 
a decent outcome. I'll tell you what I'm doing. Uh, the world, uh, in an odd moment of lucidity, uh, agreed in 2015 on two very important ideas. One, that sustainable development, meaning that we combine the economy with social justice and with environmental sustainability, should be a, a guiding principle. And second, the Paris Climate Agreement to keep us from going over the cliff on climate change. Well, I regard those two agreements, the Sustainable Development Goals and the Paris Climate Agreement, as actually our best hope. Sometimes you feel that they're a well-hidden secret, actually. Uh, they, they need to be publicly known. They need to be understood. But I view them as potentially at least a rallying cry for politics. We need a politics of decency. We need a politics of survival against climate change, loss of biodiversity. The world actually agreed on some really remarkably good, important, uh, right-headed goals. What if we had our politics aiming for the common good rather than for the game of power? This is my question. Maybe it sounds a little bit naive, but my favorite philosopher is Aristotle, and uh, he said 2,350 years ago that politics was about the common good. And that's what I would like to see. I'd like to see us rally for the common good. And I count sustainable development and safety from climate disaster as the common good. Let's end on that hopeful note. Thank you, Jeff Sachs, for being with us. A pleasure. We're talking with Angus Deaton, and we'll focus on inequality for a few questions. Let's begin with that advocate, great advocate of uh, economic equality, J.P. Morgan, um, who suggested in the 19th century that the ratio between a boss's earnings and his employees' earnings should be 20 to 1. Today, that ratio exceeds 150 to 1. In the United States, in particular, the crisis heightened uh, recognition of the growing gap between rich and poor, but the rise in inequality has been marked over the last four decades or so. So let's begin by um, examining what's been driving it. I mean, you know, there's there's a tremendous amount of disagreement about that, as about many things. Um, and I think the the I'll come back to the what I think might be the answer, but the disagreement is sort of interesting in itself because I think that. Many of us think some aspects of inequality are good and that some aspects of inequality are bad. And that, um, you know, how we feel about inequality is not about inequality itself, but about the mechanisms which are making it happen. So when you think of a CEO being paid much more than, you know, there are people, this is not my field, but there are people who argue that you know you can see this in the marginal product and CEOs have much wider range and scope than they used to have and they command thousands of people whereas the CEO used to only command a few people so you know commensurate it makes sense um, other people and I think I would be one of those more or less is that you know 
um, CEOs largely have command over their own compensation committees and they pay themselves what they want to pay. Um, and that is something that I think is a problem and is part of a much wider phenomenon, which is that people who already have a lot of money can use that money to give themselves even more money. Um, so you set up a sort of um, feedback loop which makes inequality much wider and where these people are not being paid for anything they did or contributed, but just are rent-seeking, essentially. You kind of stole my thunder because, of course, it's a truism that economic growth requires some degree uh, of inequality in order to maintain incentives to work and invest and so on and innovate, Um, while too much can undermine growth by leading to weaker aggregate demand. And you've written that the right question is not how much uh, inequality society has, but what kind, and specifically whether that inequality is fair or unfair. And how can we tell the difference? I don't think it's hard for people to tell the difference. I mean, I think that there was someone, I'm not quite sure where this is traced back to, but it's a phrase I like, which is, is there's two ways of getting rich. One way is of making things, and the other way is taking things. Right, Taking things is unfair and is widely resented. Making things is fine, and if it benefits everybody, which it often does, that inequality is great. So, you know, you have to say where it comes from, and I don't think that's so hard for most people. So when they see people feeding at the trough and making themselves rich at Washington, they get really pissed off. And if they see, you know, someone, Steve Jobs, inventing, you know, devices that they like to play with, they think that's fine. So I'm sure in the middle there are cases which are not so clear. You've also argued that inequality is an outcome, not a cause of processes uh, driving the global economy. But the economic insecurity accompanying this rise in inequality seems to be correlated with some obviously adverse social trends. For example, you and your co-author, Anne Case, stirred considerable attention uh, three years ago with your finding that middle-aged white Americans' death rate increased by more than 20% between 1999 and 2013. That's a half million extra deaths, mainly due to alcohol and drug abuse-related diseases and suicide, and largely concentrated among those with a high school education or less. And what explains that striking finding? Why has the trend affected white Americans in particular? And has it worsened or leveled off in the intervening years since you came across this, since you uncovered this? Uh, the, the last one is the easy one to answer, which is it's getting worse. Um, and the deaths from um, drug overdoses are still rising. And the preliminary figures for 2016, which were, I think, 72,000, are larger than is wherever people died from HIV AIDS in a single year or in Vietnam or from guns or from road crashes. The total number of drug overdoses since 2000 is more than the number of Americans who died in both world wars. Um, So you're talking about really big numbers. So why is it? I think because the people who do not have a BA, particularly those with only a high school degree, um, their lives have come apart and their lives have come apart in many dimensions. Um, I think the declining real wages for the last 50 years has certainly been part of that. The decline in jobs that mean anything. Um, You know, people used to work. You could work as a janitor and work your way up to be CEO. You can't do that anymore. 
because almost all large companies have outsourced the janitorial, cooks, drivers, everything. Um, I remember at Davos asking one of the Google guys, so how many people without a BA do you have at Google? He said, quite a few, you'd be surprised. I said, what do they do? He said, they're genius programmers that we take them right out of high school. <laughs> right? So, you know, they're not bus drivers or cleaners or janitors or security staff. All of that is. So, you know, and instead people are having jobs that don't mean very much or a series of jobs that don't mean very much. And, you know, the unions have gone. Not everybody thought unions were wonderful, but there's very little private sector unionization left. Social life was organized around unions. Um, a lot of political representation happened through unions um, that people could start on the ladder to Congress by being a union guy. Um, that was true in Britain too, and it's all gone. Um, church going has fallen enormously among these people. They don't get married anymore, and they have kids. The majority of mothers without a BA have had at least one kid out of wedlock. So if you go back 30 years and talk about what white politicians used to talk about the black community, those descriptions sound an awful lot like the less educated white community now. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to sort of focus on because those, those kinds of economic trends, you, one would think, are affecting Latinos, African Americans the same. What is it about that? Why is it a, a impacting or affecting white American Americans in particular? That was the hardest part of your question. Yeah. Well, the Latino is odd. There's actually one other community that's done even worse than the whites, and that's um, Native Americans. And they suffer from many of the same suicide, drug addiction, and so on. The Hispanic is hard because there's so many of those people are first-generation immigrants, and the geographical composition matters, and there's a lot of churning and changing around. Um, but for a lot of those people, they're full of hope because they look back to where they came from or where their parents came from, and they see that it's a better world. So for African-Americans, it's much more of a puzzle. Um, and because there was some wage gain relative to whites for African-Americans in the early 70s, there's been very little since. And of course, all of these things I'm talking about jobs have happened to African-Americans in the same way that have happened to whites. Yet, there's a lot of indicators. There's much more hope in the African-American community. So you ask them how they see their life going five years from now. It's way ahead of where it is now, which is not true for whites. Um, at all. Um, blacks, you know, the disintegration of the family is something that's happened to African Americans since slavery, where they weren't allowed to marry and so on. And they've evolved institutions that maybe deal with it, like, you know, there's a granny around and an aunt or an uncle, and the family sort of looks after each other. The African churches have not suffered in the way that the white churches have suffered, so there's maybe a lot more social support there. And, you know, it's even if you go back to Durkheim, he said, well, you know, if you oppress people for long enough, they develop mechanisms, social mechanisms, to resist this in some way. I also think the blacks, you know, dealt with the cocaine and heroin epidemics of 30 years ago, and they find some way of handling that. Um, and, you know, that perhaps protected them against the opioid. It may also be that, and this has been argued in the literature, that um, 
white doctors don't believe that blacks are in pain, so they don't give them pain medicine. <laughs> and in this case, that was a really good thing. It was like, you know, in the 60s, the 50s and 60s, women were, women's smoking was highly disapproved, and that saved them from a lot of death and lung cancer. I remember walking down the street with my mother in Scotland when I was a child, and there was a woman smoking a cigarette, a young woman smoking a cigarette at the other side of the street. My mother said to me, prostitute. <laughs> <laughs> Ten years have gone by uh, since uh, the Lehman Brothers collapse, and Wall Street is once again riding high. And given how concentrated shareholding is, especially in, in the United States, this seems likely to exacerbate inequality rather than mitigate it. Can anything be done to counter the trend? Okay, so I can think of several things I do, some of which are relatively easy and some of which are really hard. So a hard one, but I think that would make a huge difference, is if we had single-payer health care or some form of that. Um, we're spending 18% of GDP. The next highest is 12. 6% of GDP is a trillion dollars a year. That's $8,000 for every family in America, that's pure waste. And it's all going to really rich people. I mean, to device manufacturers, pharma companies, doctors, hospitals, okay? So that's one of these things I think of as, you know, Ross Perot talked about the giant sucking sign, but this giant sucking sign is of money going from poor people up to rich people, and it's coming out of wages to pay for this healthcare that is, or not all of it, but some of it's coming out of wages. I have not studied the financial sector itself, but there seems to be a tremendous amount of rent-seeking there. And, you know, they're too big to fail and all that sort of stuff. And no one was ever punished for what happened in the financial crisis, which, you know, in a sense of justice, it would be nice to see some of these people strung up. On the other hand, you worry about it happening again because there's no disincentive um, to do it all over again. But I also think antitrust policy, which we seem to have lost, you know, that's a case where people are lobbying Washington to get special favors to make them rich, and that's theft. I mean, it's not illegal theft, it's legal theft. And that is upward redistribution. You know, these are the sort of things I would focus on. I also think for some of these things, especially the rent-seeking things, there's pretty much agreement on, you know, you could get Cato and Bernie Sanders to agree that this is a bad thing, that theft from poor people is not really a good idea. Greg Bruno will be back on October 9th with another episode, but until then, be sure to check out our coverage of the crisis at www.project-syndicate.org. I'm Jonathan Stein. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>